0: So, again, if you would uh, take out your Bible and let's turn together to Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to be reading all of chapter 10 through v- chapter 11, verse 9. Now, that's a lot. I recognize that. It'll become more apparent why we're looking at uh, all of this. Part of the reason for this is this is actually one literary unit. It all actually goes together. Um, So this is the table of nations. And uh, you'll recognize, of course, the Tower of Babel. So, Genesis chapter 10, starting at verse 1, and we'll read through uh, chapter 11, verse 9. So again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. These are the generations of the sons of Noah... Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth: Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sabata, Rama, and Sabteca, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that, the land he went, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, uh, Re- Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Lodim, Anaman, <coughs> Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, in Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgasi- Girgashites, the Hivite the Arkites, the Sinites, the Ardivites, the Zerdamites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Jepheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Ark-Pashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arkshad fathered Shela, and Shela fathered Eber. De Eber bore two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, has <coughs> Hazmatheth, Jera, Hadorim, Uza, Diklah, Abel, uh, Obel, <coughs> Abimeo, and Sheba. Ophir, Haglia, Hobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of of Sephar to the hill country to the east. These were the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in the nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood." lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for this reading of Your Word. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of Your Word. Be with us Your servant. We pray, God, that as the Word is explained, is open to us, that we would understand uh, the beauty, even of these names which we don't understand, the beauty of the fact that these things all connect together. That you have one plan of salvation that leads us to Christ. And so we pray, Father, that we would understand these truths, that we would apply to our lives, and that your name would be given glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the division of people and nations in the world has a twofold quality. All of the people of the earth have both unity with one another and diversity. So there is unity and diversity. Now on the one hand, there is unity among the human race. The Bible speaks of man being made imago Dei, that is, in the image of God. And all of these image bearers have in their common descent, Adam. And then, of course, after the flood, Noah. So, in this sense, there is unity. You know, all people descend from one man and ultimately were made by God. But there is also diversity. There are many families, there are tribes, peoples, nations, languages. People have variations in skin tone, eye color, hair color, variations in stature. There are various cultures, geography, various experiences people share. All of these things shape the way a person interacts with the world. And so there's great diversity in our world. And this in part is shaped by sometimes where a person grew up. This is true even within the confines of our own nation. You know, we here we joke about the differences between, say, a person who grew up in northern Iowa and a person who grew up in southern Missouri. We have a family with that, that sort of mixed marriage here. Uh, there are words and phrases and cultural norms which are different, even among states which border one another. I come from Arizona. And it has been noted that I have a peculiar way of pronouncing certain words. So there are regional differences, even where we have a common language. So even in our own congregation, we have a level of diversity. Now consider the whole planet. And so there is unity and diversity. And in people, there is a desire for community. People want to be in community. They want to have unity. Now, this is not a bad thing. It is, nat- it is natural, but uh, it, well, it's natural because man is made in God's image. So, of course, we want to have, enjoy those things. But often, the unity which people desire, and, and of course, we're speaking of natural man in particular, but There's a desire to have unity as they sort of form others into their own image. In other words, you need to be like me. But the reality is that without the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no real basis for unity. In fact, much of natural man's efforts of bringing so-called unity is really a veiled attempt to subjugate others and to add to their own standing. The seeking of unity in our own day is not a celebration of the diversity of humanity as much as uh, that's stated as the, the goal. is actually a destruction of the diversity of humanity and in the, in the course of that, it's a destruction of any sort of true unity. When man seeks to build his own autonomous kingdom in rebellion against God, history has shown that all of these attempts are met with frustration and ruin. And that would be true of what will come about from, the, from, the, the, from men today attempting to do these things. It will come about that they will have frustration and ruin. Nevertheless, some continue to turn from God. They seek to carve out their own little kingdoms at the expense of others. And if you think about it, isn't that really at the heart of every conflict? Isn't that at the heart of every war? Isn't this at the root of even the current conflict in Ukraine? So today, in our study, we are turning our attention to this very long section of Scripture... And I thank you for forbearing with the reading of it, even as I struggle with some of the names myself. Um, but we are looking at two basic parts uh, of this whole. Uh, the first is what we call the table of nations. And then the second part is uh, focusing on the Tower of Babel. Now, as we study this, I hope you will note uh, both the, humanity, the, the unity of humanity and the diversity of humanity. And in addition, although this is a, a very long section and we could not possibly go through every little detail, it should be understood that this is one unit. and In fact, it was intended this be read together. This all actually goes together. Uh, the first section in the Table of Nations in historic chronology actually comes after the second In other words, the Tower of Babel explains the dispersion of all the people who are listed on the table. Lastly, before we jump in, I will note that many of us tend to skim over these long genealogical lists. If we're honest, we tend to just sort of like we'll just kind of continue reading, I have no idea who these people are, and I'm not going to worry about it. Well, I want to encourage us not to do that. And I say we, or us, because I'm guilty also. But I want to encourage us not to do that. Because in doing so, we miss out on some theological gems. There are riches to be dug up here. And so we want to be careful we don't ignore those. Now, what on the surface is a list of names and places is actually a record of God's sovereign plan and blessings which are promised to all people. All humanity descends from these three sons of one favored man, Noah, who was himself a reflection of the first man, Adam. And so God brought about blessings, a promise for humanity by confusing and dispersing mankind. On the surface it seems contrary, right? Well, wait a minute. He's going to bring about unity by, by confusing everybody and separating them? That's right. That's exactly what he does. The reality of that blessing is, of course, achieved through the line of Shem, and through Abraham, and through his seed, which the New Testament asserts is accomplished for Israel through Christ and the church, And the church then brings the good news to all of the nations. Which is to say, we're in the middle of of this accomplishing this, right? Through the the proclamation of the gospel to all of the nations. So we carry it to all the dispersed nations. Even as God dispersed the people, His plan was to seek and bring them back through the sun. And so that's the blessing that we miss out on uh, seeing in this table. So now that we've, um, hopefully, we've oriented ourselves a bit here, uh, we're going to turn now to the text, and you'll note, uh, it begins with a very familiar re- re- refrain. We've seen this throughout our study of Genesis. Uh, the the Toldoth. these are the generations of. And so anytime you see that in Genesis, it clues you in, ah, we're in a new section. Um, it, you know, We've sort of turned the page now. So these are the generations of. Uh, of. Uh, And what we're what is recording here? This new Toldoth is recording what has become of the three sons of Noah. uh, That is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, from them there are listed clans, territories, nations, and languages, which all show the descendants of Noah are divided by their families, they're divided by geography, they're divided by their politics. We're not divided by politics today, are we? Yeah. Yeah. Divided by politics, divided by language. Now, some of the names mentioned on the table are people. Some of the names are people. Some of the names are places. Some of these are groups of people. And so there's a variety in the table. Now, uh, the other thing you'll note is the familiar order is given of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They tend to always be in that order. But in a genealogical record, you'll note that the order is reversed. It begins with Japheth, then Ham, who incidentally is the youngest, and then it lists Shem, who's the oldest. Now the reason for this is that the line of Shem is the line of promise, thus the reason why it's, uh, it's given last. And in addition to this, uh, we didn't read the rest of Shem's line. That actually comes after the tower incident. So, it's, so uh, the tower incident is sandwiched by the two, uh, the two lines of Shem. And the second part of it, which we didn't read, is what leads to Abraham. So that's, in a sense, you, you have to understand this is being set off. So, as a reader, ah, I need to pay attention. There's a reason this is set off separately after the Tower of Babel. So, you know, sort of orienting you a little bit more there. Now, the first family that we look at in this table of nations is the sons of Jepheth. And, and as I've already mentioned, I, I can't go into great detail on all of these, but I do want to touch on a few things uh, I don't want to be uh, uh, cumbersome to you. It would be, be so cumbersome to listen to a sermon on every single little detail as it would be for me to deliver such a sermon to you. But I do want to touch on a few, uh, a few little uh, things here and there, highlight a few of the names. And that, now, the lineage of Jetheth make up the families which encompass what we would call, um, you know, as you do sort of study of, of people groups and whatnot, uh, they're called the Indo-European people group. And it's also a language group. Also, uh, these are people. This is a people group which stretched from continental Europe, Great Britain, all the way to the Indian subcontinent. So, it's a, a vast area where people have settled. Okay? And there's many different languages, interrelated languages, actually. And many of the names here listed can be traced to uh, people groups that are known today. For instance, Gomer is identified by other ancient writers, such as Herodotus and Plutarch, as the ancestor of the Cimmerians, a name which today survives as Crimea. You might recognize that. It's been in the news recently. The Crimean Peninsula. This is the people from which the Ukrainians and Russians descend. Another on the list is Ashkenaz. These are people who settled in Germany and Scandinavia and ultimately in the British Isles as well. Anglo-Saxons. Names such as Scandia and Saxon still survive from from this. Uh, It's a derivative of... In fact, the Ashkenazi is a name given to the Jews who settled in Germany. Then you have the uh, Madai, this is the ancient the ancestors to the Medes who settle in Persia. Of course we're familiar. maybe if you want to know your Old Testament, the Medes and the Persians. Okay. Uh, that's uh, what is in current day Iran. And from this group also come uh, the Aryans who later, later migrate into the Indian subcontinent and these become the Hindu people. We also have um, Javan, who's listed as the father of Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodium. And this is the original form of, Ionia, of, of Ionia, which is a region on the far western edge of Turkey. This is where the Greeks come from. Hellas is a form of the name Elisha, which is how the Greek people are, are referred to. Actually, without, throughout the scriptures, they're referred to this way. Now, Tarshish is best known for their seafaring activities. They're said to be exporters of metal. Now, we don't know the exact location of Tarshish. So that is hard to determine. Uh, most often, the reference is to, place, uh, to a place west of Jerusalem. Um, island ports like Tarsus in Asia Minor or, or Tarsius in Spain. Now, Tarshish is familiar to us because you remember Jonah infamously caught a ship to Tarshish and headed westward away from Joppa. As he was trying to escape from the Lord, he's going to Tarshish. If you know the story, of course, you know God had other plans for him. He was going to make sure he went to Nineveh. Now each of these, uh, these, uh, verse 5 says, are coastland people who spread out in their lands and develop their own languages, their own clans, and their own nations. Now we'll see this. This is actually a refrain that's repeated throughout the table. Okay? These are all the people with their languages, their nations, their clans, and they spread. Okay? And so th- this first list deals with what we would call the Indo-European people. Uh, the next family set in the Table of Nations is that of Ham. Now, as I've, I've mentioned already, it is interesting to note that the, that the middle son and his family are for, listed first, then the youngest is next, and then the oldest son last. So here, with the line of Ham, we come to the people who most significantly impacted the history of Israel. Among them are traditional enemies like Canaan, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. Included here are the names of clans, individuals, cities. Uh, You'll note a particular attention is to Nimrod. Nimrod is sort of set aside and there's, there's more commentary about Nimrod. He was a mighty man, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, Nimrod's name incidentally means, we shall rebel. And in his rebellion, uh, he built great cities, Babel, which is Babylon, Nineveh, which I I mentioned earlier, the place Jonah was to go to and preach, that great city of Assyria, which was also the great enemy of Israel. Uh, Rehoboth-er, which roughly translates to the city of broad streets. So, Nimrod was great. He was building great and massive cities. And he was so great in fact that he became a proverb among Israel. A mighty hunter, like like Nimrod. But he used his greatness not to honor the Lord, but for building his own cities throughout Mesopotamia this will of course be consequential throughout the history of Israel. There's great, this list shows the great consequences of this because these are the people that Israel ends up running up against constantly in particular two Mesopotamian powers which end up both conquering Israel and holding them captive Assyria who conquers the northern kingdom and of course Babylon who takes Judah into captivity later now, the list of Ham's sons generally runs from south to north, so it was actually a geographic orientation to the list. Um, there was, of course, some exceptions and intermixings. Um, Kush, though, for instance, is Africa's uh, Nubia. Uh, so this was a location south of Egypt, uh, modern day Sudan. Uh, so, and the people would have settled along the Nile River. Um, I don't know how much African. Uh, Uh, geography you might know, but the Nile River uh, begins actually in Uganda, and it flows north. So all the people would go, as they were going south, they're actually going higher in elevation toward the headwaters of the Nile. They settled all along the Nile, because away from the Nile is not very habitable. But these are the people who ultimately populate the African continent. So um, that's Kush. Next is Egypt. Uh, In Hebrew, uh, Mizraim. And this is the plural form referring to the two Egypts, the upper Egypt and lower Egypt. So put is, uh, dis- now put is disputed, but is most likely Libya. Uh, and in Canaan, of course, refers to the people who settled in the promised land, the land of Canaan. And recall that there is a curse upon Canaan. We saw this a couple weeks ago about the curse upon Canaan for what he had done to his father, Now notice, too, that the line of Canaan and the geographic boundaries occupy the most space in the lineage. A lot of time is spent talking about uh, the the geography that Canaan would have. The firstborn of Canaan is listed as Sidon. This is the ancient city, which was one of the earliest and great urban centers of Phoenicia. Uh, Next is Heth, which is some translated as Hittite, uh, but there's no connection between this and the later Hittites, which occupy Asia Minor. And then the list continues with all the Canaanite peoples, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sennonites, the Arbidites, the Zerubites, the Hamathites. And I had a sermon professor who would also add in, just for good measure, the mosquito bites, just to make sure we were paying attention. But these are all the clans. These are all the peoples. These are all the nations. These, they inhabited the land which... Uh, which, the, which later the patriarchs would inherit okay? with the uh, Hamathite territory make, marking the most northern portion of the land and, and by the way that portion uh, it ends up becoming part of, of uh, part of Israel with King Solomon and then uh, of the and then of this list, the Amorites are probably the best known. We know about the Amorites; uh, they're listed a lot. Abraham will later have a peaceful coexistence with them. He'll be allied with them in defeating a coalition of eastern kings. So the Amorites uh, were someone Abraham uh, worked some with. Uh, there is in the description of Canaan's territory a great detail. Given. Now this is probably to prepare the reader for the promises which are to be revealed later on in Genesis. These are names which are going to come up throughout the narrative. And so as a reader, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. And you kind of go back to the table of nations and you can see. Now there is, a, a, there is in the description more attention given to the southern cities. Um, and again this is cities of the Amorites but you recognize Sodom and Gomorrah along with lesser known cities Adma and Zeboim you recognize them of course because this was the region in which the patriarchs had originally settled and you you'll remember them because these four cities are mentioned by, as being overthrown by God when he rained down fire and brimstone upon them in judgment and We'll of course get to that later on in our study of Genesis. Now again there is a refrain as we as after all these are listed and we are sort of oriented to to the geography and the different cities and different people there's a refrain uh, observing that these are the sons of Ham who, who and these are the clans, languages, lands and nations. Now now our author Moses turns his attention to to the chosen line, and that is the line of Shem, from whom will come Eber, uh, the ancestor of Abra- Abraham's father, Terah. So Genesis, though, has this pattern. It has a pattern of, of outlining the non-elect first, and then the elect. And the line of Shem, there's a striking divergence with the sons of Eber. The non elect line of Joktan Jock, is listed, but Peleg's line is dropped altogether. He's mentioned, and then we move on. Now, Peleg's name, um, well, let me just say this the line is not going to be picked up until after the tower incident, just because this, this is the promised line. Okay? So, after the Tower of Babel, Peleg will come up again. And Peleg, his name means division. So it's named, that's why, and it's named that because then that's the time of the division. And so we'll see his, the rest of that line in chapter 11. But it's here that the table alerts the reader that it was during the days of Peleg that there was division among the people as a result of the tower and the city of Babel. And so there's this connection between the genealogical record of the Table of Nations and then the narrative of the Tower of Babel. This is, why, this is where all this stuff starts to come together. Now the rest of the names listed in the final tier of the Shemite genealogy, we, we don't actually know much about them. Um, most have been identified with the Arabian Peninsula, but there's really not much more I can, I can say on those. Um, but this section again ends, like all the others, with a summary refrain, And then a summary for the whole table in verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And so you have this table uh, which outlines all the various people groups. Um, And by the way, this table is used even by unbelievers. It is the the most complete in the ancient world of anything having to do with any of the nations and any of the peoples. And as they refer to it, even the unbeliever, uh, unbelieving uh, scholar has to admit that this is an amazing document. Even though they don't believe the promises of it, they're, they're amazed at how much that they're able to trace. Well, I would say, well, what a coincidence, right? It's not really, we know, because it's God's Word. Well, we leave now the Table of Nations, and we turn now to the narrative of the Tower of Babel. And as I mentioned, this is all one literary unit. That being said, the Tower incident, as we may call it, uh, comes to us in a chiastic structure. If you were here, uh, well a number of weeks ago a couple months ago now we talked about chiasm. Uh, this is a structure which has parallel lines which then reverse after a pivot point in the middle and then of course the focus is that pivot point. And the structure reveals to the reader man's struggle against God as he seeks to make a name for themselves and to avoid being dispersed. Now you can you can uh, also keep in mind that Nimrod whose name means we will rebel, It plays heavily into what is happening here. This is within his city. Now the pivot point here comes in verse 5. When God came down to investigate the situation, and and then it's all reversed as the city and the tower that they are building is then abandoned and all the languages are confused and the people are dispersed. And so the arrogance of the tower builders is similar to those who had come before them. They had, been dest- they had been destroyed in the flood. Here, humanity again had these lofty schemes of building a tower to the clouds so they could have power and glory, that they could usurp God, throw him off his throne, as it were. They would want to make a name for themselves. These men desired to overthrow God, as it were, in his very dwelling place, that is, in the heavens. They were going to build a tower to heaven where God is, and they would go and assert their own authority. Now, of course, we know this is a foolish endeavor. I mean, how could mortal man overthrow God? And yet, isn't this the same sort of foolishness that we see today? When, when man says, there is no God. Is not the denial of God the denial of His dignity and His glory? Is this not an attempt to overthrow God, as it were? Here the post-Diluvian tower builders were acting as the spiritual heirs of Cain, not Seth, from whom they had actually descended. In our modern day... Unbeliever, natural man, the atheist, who says there is no God, they too are the spiritual heirs of Cain. They too wish to overthrow God and make the name for themselves. So verse 1 then establishes the unity of mankind. It says, And now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now that unity, again, will be reversed by the end of the story. There's going to be a complete reversal. Now, we might ask, what is meant by the whole earth? What is meant by the whole earth? The whole earth had one language and the same word. Is, uh, is this everyone on the planet? Uh, is this all of those in the Mesopotamian region? Now, it's interesting enough, the Hebrew word here could go either way. It could mean the entire world, or it could refer to simply a limited area. Certainly, it would not be surprising that as people expand out from Noah and the Ark, that people would share a common language. I mean, there's all at that point still all the same family. And that will, of course, change as it becomes separated more and more by time and space. At the very least, it should be understood that the language was the same for all the people of the world that the author was aware of at that moment. All those who were building the tower were united in, with one language. From the pausing of the of the table of nations on Nimrod, it seems we could also understand that he was, at the very least, involved with the building of the Tower of Babel. If not, sort of, the, whose idea was it that he himself was the builder of the Tower of Babel? We can deduce he was at least responsible for part in part of this building. And as the people moved eastward, they were seeking to separate themselves. From God. Now again, when eastward is mentioned or the east, it's actually symbolic for separation, being separated from God. Like when Adam and Eve, when they were expelled from the garden, uh, from the Garden of Eden, and God placed a cherubim and the flaming sword at the east end of the garden. Or when uh, Cain moved and they went east, right? That separation, going away from God—that's that, how we're to understand this. These people—they weren't building a, a tower so like, "Oh, we want to go where God is and worship Him." No, 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 no. They were seeking to overthrow Him. They were seeking to be separate from God, and that's seen even the symbolism of uh, east. And so they make bricks. They begin to build a city. And they build a tower which would reach into the heavens. Now the builder's ambition was autonomy. They wish to have a stairway to the divine so that they can make themselves great. So, the problem is not that they wanted to build a city. It's not even that they wanted to build a tall tower like, like our modern day skyscrapers. This is not what the problem is. Uh, tall buildings, in and of themselves, are nothing inherent. There's nothing inherently sinister or sinful about them. Now, of course, you all live, we all live in a rural place. We might not like them particularly, but there's nothing wrong with them hall buildings. Now the problem is that they conceived of this as granting them access to the throne room of God. We're going to go into the throne room of God uninvited as it were. We're just going to go before the king of all things, sort of bust in on Him and make a name for ourselves. They can enter into his council uninvited. You see, they were not seeking God's blessings which incidentally had already been promised to them. They were seeking to make a name for themselves in rebellion against their creator. Now the hinge of their narrative turns on, on, on divine inspection in verse 5. This is where the reversal begins. Look, look what it says, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now consider like God coming down You're building a tower. (laughs) Notice that whenever God brings judgment, there's always an appropriate inspection. Uh, Think about his interrogation of Adam and Eve. It's a great example of his inspection. It is not that God doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) No. He, He understands exactly what's happening, but he's demonstrating true justice. True justice requires a proper investigation. So God has said, Okay, fine, I'm going to invest. I'm going to come down and we'll take a look at what you're doing down here. So God looks over the city. He finds man's misdirected efforts to establish autonomy and self sufficiency. And so God meets this by redirecting their efforts the people have joined together as one on the surface and this seems right and good oh this is wonderful there's unity we all have one language we're one people isn't this, isn't this great but they were not using that unity for good purpose and this was only the beginning The unity of the people was not for the purpose of bringing glory to their Creator. No, they were attempting to find significance in themselves, in their advancement, in their technology, in their innovation, in their own personal greatness. And this building project was only the start of a world united against God. Natural man, who is in active rebellion against his creator, when left to himself, can achieve what he sets his mind to. I mean, we see that in our own world, don't we? I mean, don't we enjoy spectacular innovation and technology? I mean, you have in your pockets, right, a personal computer that would have taken a a city block within many of some of your lifetimes. man can still create amazing things but the victory found in these endeavors is empty because the true prize has already been forfeited they're without God and this is as much true today as it was in the days of Babel fallen man's effort for unity is always counterfeit This is not then a call for disunity or separation, but for true unity, which is only found in Christ. That's true unity. The question one must ask is what is the basis for human unity? Is it the self? Is it our intellect? Is it our technology? Is it our politics? Is that what really unites us? Now, true unity cannot and will not be achieved through the efforts of men, but only through the redeeming and transforming work of God in Christ. In this sense, then, the dispersion of the nations was to set the stage for God's redeeming work at the cross. And carrying forth of the gospel to the nations, a work which still continues to our own day. A work which we get to participate in as His people. We are not yet in the new heavens and new earth. The gospel still needs to go forward to all the nations. And so, what is proposed in God's divine counsel then was to confuse the languages of the people and to disperse them throughout the earth so that they would abandon this building endeavor. Babel's culture of power was fragmented by confusion, which then allowed God's true blessing to be realized. Which is to say, it was actually a blessing that God did this. God will scatter the nations then in order to regather them as the redeemed and his elect in Christ. And his plan will work through the line of Shem, through Peleg, and down to Abraham. Abraham the nations have always needed to submit themselves to the rule of God. Ultimately, in the appointed man, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ who is King. True King. And so as God confuses their languages, verse 8, the people gave up their building project, and they were dispersed over the whole earth. Now you'll note, uh, the author says... That the place then is call, therefore called Babel because the Lord confused their language. And this is actually so, such delicious, a delicious wordplay and sarcasm. It really is. See, the Akkadian word Babulu, from which the word Babylon comes, the word Babylon to the Babylonians was the gateway of God, right? This is the tower they built building. This is parodied by the Hebrew word Babel, which means confused. So delicious, isn't it? The builders of the tower sought to build a gateway to the gods and to make a name for themselves, but they sure got a name. Their name is Confusion. The Tower of Babel, though, not only is humiliating for those who were involved in it, but also serves as a warning to God's people. In the history of Israel, the Canaanite cities, which were seen as the overwhelming fortresses to the Israelites, you remember when they investigated the land? Like they're huge! They're huge cities! We're never going never gonna to be able to defeat them. But these cities were doomed to fall like the walls of Jericho. Any nation who defies the moral will of God then are met with the same fate as the tower utter destruction. The Canaanite cities would prove to be incredibly attractive to the Israelites. This is sort of reading further into the story. And so they were were warned repeatedly against succumbing to idolatry, succumbing to the ways of the Canaanite people. The people were to follow the commands of God not to seek autonomy, but when the people did go after the other gods, they sought their own way, they too were dispersed. Israel too was dispersed. Dispersed. Just as all the other nations which we read about in the table of nations were, they too met the same fate of dispersion. And the diaspora of Israel is made more acute when you consider the irony that God used the confused nation of Babylon to accomplish that work. Think about that. God used the nation that he called confusion to cleanse his people from idolatry. Even as Moses wrote those words, I'm not sure he understood the irony of all that either. But subsequent history shows us that God has used exile to prepare people for their eventual restoration and to turn their affections toward Yahweh, the Lord. This was the case for Israel as they went into Babylon and spent 70 years and they came back no longer following after idols. This is the case for Israel. This is the case for all the nations. God's plan for rescue and redemption then was not only for Israel as a nation, but for all of the nations. It has always been God's intention to bring all the people back under the shadow of His wings. And in Christ, some from every tribe and from every language and from every people and from every nation are united, truly united in Him. In His death and His resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty for sin, having cleansed us from all unrighteousness and has given to us a new life and made us members of a spiritual kingdom in Him. And as members of His church, and as fellow heirs with Him, as citizens in His heavenly kingdom, we are adopted sons and heirs of all of the promises, all of the riches found in Christ. All of these, the promises that we saw all the way in Genesis, it plays out all the way through Revelation. We have been saved by grace through faith, and this beloved congregation is a free gift from God. And since this is the case, all of the nations can rejoice and be glad. God has come down and has reversed the effects of the fall, just as He has reversed the situation of the men at the tower. And so the table of nations represents all the families of the earth, all of humanity then, through the preaching of the gospel, and by His Spirit can come to repentance and faith. Thus there will be members of every nation found in Christ and will on the last day surround the throne of Christ and will worship Him for all eternity. Hallelujah! What a Savior! God had in His divine wisdom and goodness saw fit to divide many millennia ago In Christ has reunited and is right now reuniting and will be finally and completely in the new heavens and new Earth. So if there is to be any true unity among the diverse people of the world, then it must come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must. It is God who provides the true unity of humanity. It's not found in our politics, beloved. It's not found in our skin tones. It's not found in our geographic regions which we grew up with. It's found in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Some years ago, I was in Zambia. Actually, this was before Sarah and I got married. And I was talking to a local Christian there, a Zambian Christian. And he looked at me and he said this. He says, Paul, you and I have more in common with one another than we do with our own countrymen. Because we have Christ. You know, he's right. Our unity comes not because we are citizens of the United States or Zambia or whatever nation a person might be a member of. Our unity comes because we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom in Christ. And Jesus is our King. He is the one who laid down His life for our sins. He is the one who was raised on the third day. He is the one who gave to us His Spirit, who works faith in us and repentance in us. He is our Savior and our King. The world we live in is full of so much noise, so, so much saying you know, how, how divisive Christians are. They would have us believe that Christianity does nothing but divide and destroy the world. They may even accuse God of destruction as He dispersed the people. On the contrary, the only true unity can be found in Christ. And so I would urge you to find your rest, find your refreshment, find your unity, even among diversity, in Him. It is Him that we find true joy, true peace, true life. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, O oh God, for the unity which we enjoy through the faith, through the body of Christ, your bride. We thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your light. We thank you that you have adopted us as sons and made us heirs, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We thank you, God, that in your divine goodness that you saw fit to disperse humanity throughout the world so that your plan of redemption may come to pass. We thank you, God, for your great wisdom and power. And help us, O God, to live in light of these things, to trust you, to find our comfort and rest in you. Even as we we experience a world which seems divided. Well, it is. It's divided because they don't know their Savior, Jesus. And so may we be found as those who proclaim your excellencies, O God. May your gospel go forth. May true unity come to pass. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.